Hello, and welcome to Heartland History, the podcast of the Midwestern History Association. I'm your host today, Camden Bird, and I am an assistant professor of history at Eastern Illinois University. I'm very excited to introduce my next guest today, Dr. Molly Rosam, who is the Ronald R. Nelson Chair of Great Plains and South Dakota History at the University of South Dakota. Today, Dr. Rosam will be talking to us about her new book, Grasslands Grown, Creating Place on the U.S. Northern Plains and Canadian Prairies, which was recently published by the University of Nebraska Press and the University of Manitoba Press in Canada. Dr. Rosam, welcome. Thanks for having me. I'm delighted to be here and talk about the book. Yes, I, I'm so excited to talk about the book. I really enjoyed it, and, and I can't wait to jump in. But perhaps before we jump into the contents of the book, we can start with the lead-up. I, I'd love to hear about the origins of this project. What led you to focus on this particular topic? Well, the origins are kind of long and deep, and there, there's multiple origins. I mean, first of all, I actually, you know, I grew up in South Dakota, so I grew up in this region that I study. And in terms of intellectually, it really dates back to the 1990s and new Western history debates about place and where is the West. And for me, you know, watching those from afar and, and reading about all of the ideas and the discussion and the debate, and no one ever really talked about the Northern grasslands and how that fit in. And so I had this desire to sort of ask those questions about, you know, are, you know, are the Northern grasslands, the South Dakota, North Dakota, you know, even Western Minnesota, are those in the West or not in the West? And then I guess, you know, moving on from there, certain uh, trends in the historiography, sort of history of the senses, the animal turn, those things help me kind of unlock, you know, what it is to live in a place you know, at the same time, I was trying to do more of a cultural geography of region, trying to, to describe when certain labels were used and how they emerged. But it really dates back and then kind of adding historiography as the uh, new issues as the decades went on as I researched, kind of ending up with settler colonialism theory, too. So but but those are the origins. And like I said, I think obviously, you know, starting out because I grew up here and I'm a descendant of settlers to the region from Ireland or, or um, Ireland, Bohemia and Germany. So. Yeah. And all those factors, I mean, it's, you, you lay that all out there and that's, you know, that's what our conversation will be a lot about today, which is, yeah. Like what, what defines place? What is regionality? What are the limits of, you know, East, West and, and those boundaries in between. And then yes, yeah, sensory history and environmental history, which, I can't wait to talk about. This is exactly up my alley. I love regionalism uh, and how we define it. So I, I, I found myself sort of speeding up as I was reading your book. Uh, it was it was really great. And and at the center of the book really is this theme of regional identity, right? You're focused on this region, the North American grasslands. It's a region that includes both parts of you know Minnesota, Montana, Colorado, the Dakotas, and Canadian provinces like Alberta and Manitoba. These are not inherently places that one might consider a singular region, you know, from the outset, but you make the case that we should understand it that way, at least, at least in the context of the late 19th and early 20th centuries. Why do you believe that is the case? Okay. So I guess I start out with the label Northern grasslands purposefully, you know, as it is a, a label that both settlers and indigenous nations would have recognized, although they might not have used Northern grasslands, that's, it's more of a kind of continental ecological, regional definition than the cultural reasons that come to define the people studied in the book. And so the natural ecological region divides north and south and east and west into kind of habitats that defy the national border, right? It's an ecological region across two different borders. And in the time period I study, both the United States and Canada refer to the, the area as the Northwest, right? We I don't think that's going to be a surprise to Canadians, but that's more of a surprise, I think, to people uh, south of the border. By and large, it kind of emerges from the fur trade, the many decades of fur trade. And, and then especially in the early part of the intense settler colonialism when it comes to the region, 
Uh, people would talk about, you know, at the time, uh, the grasslands, um, continent-wide, north to south, were a was a was a place that people considered the West. And so, in order to distinguish what part of the grasslands you were going to, you went to the the Northwest grasslands if you were going to the United States or Canada. And it's also interesting that part of my research really revealed how much these two regions in Canada and the and and, and the United States uh, helped each other develop in the settler colonial period. In the eastern part of the, the grasslands, there was strong relationship between St. Paul and Winnipeg. In the west, there was a relationship between Alberta and Montana with the fur trade and then also with setting up ranching culture. And so from that perspective, they all called it the Northwest. They they developed together. Another thing about the Canadian aspect of it, until they had a transcontinental railroad in the mid-1880s, many of Canada's grassland settlers or settlers of the Prairie Provinces came through the United States, came to Minneapolis and then on north or went to Montana and then on north. So they were really coming from south of the border to across the border into the Canadian prairie. So I think for those reasons, um, you know, that's why I view it as a singular region. And But it has its roots really in the ecology of northern mm. grasslands. You're clear that regional identity or the cultivation of it is a story of settler colonialism. And you, you spend a great deal of time talking about um, the displacement of indigenous populations. Um, and, and, and right after that, which requires the creation of local myths um, mm -hmm. alongside those environmental and economic changes. And this is all is sort of making up these broader contours of settler colonialism. But what I found really interesting uh, about your argument is not necessarily the focus on that first generation of settlers uh, to the North American gra grasslands, which perhaps many would think are the ones who are, are creating the sense of place. But in fact, you focus it on the first generation of children to be born and raised in the region, which I thought was really interesting. Why do you think this generation, uh, the first generation to really of settler colonial children of settler colonists, to, to be born, to grow up in this region. Why do you think that generation is key to understanding um, the cultivation of regional identity? Okay, well, they're the ones, you know, short answer, they're the ones that came to terms with the place, the grasslands environment, and had to figure out how to live in that environment distinctly because the ideas that their parents had, or even that the nations of Canada and the U.S. had, did not really work out as intended. And this generation spent sort of a lifetime, you know, uh, getting to know the grass, grasslands, whether they stayed there the whole time or whether they were there as children, but sort of kept up a relationship with the region, you know, for their lifetimes. They had to figure out how to, for settler society to make a living. And of course, they were doing this in the framework of um, agriculture, specifically row crop agriculture. And they were the ones that sort of embedded colonial uh, settler society. Their parents, you might think about it this way, their parents claimed land under the land laws, which is kind of traditional settler colonial activity. They really start to claim it as a culture, as an idea. They create cultural products like novels and poetry, and also things like um, working on agricultural seeds and technology to in order to transform the place and sort of make it their own. So they claimed it, I argue, at a cultural level and really embed this idea in the rest of their nations, right? They're the ones that say, yes, we're coming, we're staying, and here are the ideas that, that are developed here. Some of their, their writings are about the, the struggle to stay. And it's also interesting that you know, they're doing this at the same time that U.S. and Canadian policy is forcing Indigenous children to move away from the place and sever their ties with the, the grasslands that give them that sensual experience. I'm not saying that that policy was successful because it, it, it wasn't um, successful, but that was the goal. And so at the same time, you have these settler children sort of digging into the land and trying to come to terms with it and make it their own. Indigenous children are being forced away, 
right? And so it's a, it's a very kind of sad and, and, and um, challenging idea, but, but it brings it to that next level. You know, the first generation, they're settler colonials, but they're kind of, they're participating by way of, you know, bringing the sovereignty of the United States and Canada with them in terms of using land law, using liberal immigration policy, those kinds of things. Whereas this takes it on, it takes the second generation, takes it up to a more cultural atmospheric level. They're claiming the land through culture, not necessarily, although some of them did claim land as well. I'm curious when you're in the archives and you're doing that research, I mean, do you notice generational divides and how first generation, second generation are describing the landscape or thinking about the landscape uh, or even just relating to it? I, I, I'm just imagining and maybe I'm sort of imprinting this onto the past, but if, if someone is picking up and moving to a new place, they're always going to relate it back to what they knew, the infamiliar, the displacement of that action, even if it's by their own choice. Whereas to be born in that region, to be a child, this is, this is the world you knew. Um, I'm just curious if, if, if that comes through in that sort of generational divide that you're describing. It, yes. Uh, the difference in how parents and children perceive parents, the, the deciders of the, the immigration scheme, how they relate to the place and how their children do. There are some similarities, but the children don't know anything else, mm-hmm. right? This is their first kind of formative um, ecological environment. And in fact, a lot of the thing, you know, when they write about it, they, they wonder, well, what are these plants? What are these flowers? And they don't have names for it. And their parents don't either. They don't know what they are. Whereas, you know, back in the old country or Eastern United States or Ontario, they do know what those plants are called and they do have an association. And so children end up very kind of frustrated, making up their own names for plants. And then many of them go on to actually study such things and write the books that they wish they had mm-hmm. growing up so that the next generations will have those things. So there again, you've got the settler colonialism trying to down the generations, prepare each one to claim this land you know, on a different level. Right. And so they, they, they do really have different, different ideas. And I think the other thing that I found is sort of interesting is many of these children sort of can split their consciousness about the place. Like they mm-hmm. remember all this joy and they had such fun as kids when they weren't aware of economic problems or even, you know, disasters with, you know, how a hailstorm or, or lack of rain could affect things. They, they really, you know, took such joy in that. But then they would turn around as adults and they would have this this consciousness that this was a failure, economic failure. And it was really hard for them to, you know, understand why their parents did what they did. And so they they kind of had this split and they were angry about that and mm-hmm. sort of disappointed in their parents. But yet they also understood because they understood the environment better and its limitations. And so it, it was a real kind of uh, gripping response for them uh, and conflicted response. Grasslands Grown is in many ways an environmental history of childhood, um, which I thought was also very interesting uh, as an environmental historian myself. There are, you know, environmental histories of childhood and the cultural meanings that a child will place onto environment. This is a, a wildly underdeveloped uh, a field in environmental history. So I think your work in, in many ways, which is adding so much to the historiography, uh, is impactful uh, for this reason as well. I'm curious what aspects, what specific aspects of the grasslands environment shaped a child's sense of place during this time period of the late 19th and early 20th centuries? Okay, there, there's several things, ways I would answer that question. And one is, of course, small wild animals, <laughs> you know, like gophers and prairie dogs and rabbits and and all sorts of birds, uh, ducks and prairie chickens were, were big. And then also um, domestic animals, the farm animals that are helping them to transform the grasslands. And once again, you see the contradiction there. But it's those animals, you know, children who are interested in exploring and just, you know, have imaginations, can uh, playful outdoors. Those animals, whether wild or domestic, would take them to places in the environment, right? That that you know, children would follow animals or animals would provide the rhythms of the place and how they understood it. Because it, while the railroads took most people to the edges of the region, this is still a time 
you know, until, you know, you know, middle third of the 20th century that people used horses regularly to get around from place to place and, and town. So that sort of provided a rhythm. But these animals sort of, I argue in one of the chapters, introduced them to nature in a way, because you know how, you know, whether this is a good place to find, you know, rabbits or what they, the horses would eat or drink or what they wouldn't. Also, um, and so they learned, uh, you know, as I said before, wild flowers, you know, roses and crocuses and um, past flowers, um, but they didn't know what they were. So this was sort of an interesting thing. You know, they called the crocus or past flower, it's the same flower, you know, goslings, little, little furry goslings or shooting stars. They called duck heads or uh, lupine, the umbrella plant, hoods, flocks, mayflower, Wolf willow, many of them remember the smell of wolf willow, not just Wallace Stegner, but many of them. And so, you know, they remember the berries and berries and uh, haystacks, the way haystacks were built in the day or sheaves of uh, wheat where they would, you know, form into either shocks in Canada, no, shocks in the U.S. Or, and stooks in Canada. There's different naming sometimes for these things. And so all of that, you know, is, you know, what they related to. And I really was inspired by a lot of the early history of the census, right? So I would look specifically or try to tease out of the sources, you know, how they taught, when they talked about smell, when they talked about what they saw, which was from a certain perspective or what, how they touched the land or if they saw the land changing, I would really tease out those things, what they heard in the landscape. Uh, so kind of inspired by all of that. And it's interestingly enough because it's the grasslands, but they were also very attached to trees, <laughs> individual trees or wood stands along the river or just an occasional random three or four trees out there. Everybody would know where they were and they'd become like a signpost. And I think this is because uh, because there weren't that many of them. So everybody knew these little tree groves. And, you know, I had some of these who were more literary inclined. They'd write a whole poem or more than one poem about a tree or about a rock. Rocks were also big um, to children. They would play with all the rocks and you'd have piles of rocks from people removing them to uh, create agricultural fields, but also glacial rocks that just sort of huge rocks that are just sort of dropped somewhere on areas where you used to have glacial activity. So um, all of those things were, were places that, that, you know, and I was surprised by some, you know, some of those things that children, you know, or children, I had some wonderful children's letters, but also adults remembering corroborated those those kinds of things. So I guess those were the places that they became attached to. And um, they really felt like they understood the land. And also, I, I want to say just one more thing about that. It's not just that they saw them one time. This was daily experience, daily environmental experience. They, they grew very intimate with these spaces and the kinds of features of these spaces over the seasons week after week, day after day. And I think that makes a huge difference. They, they know what it looks like in the fall. They know what color it turns in the spring, what color it turns in late summer. So I think all of those things, they, they knew the whole round of the environment, all of that kind of seeps in to give them the sense of place. And so I end up arguing that, you know, place is more sensual, physical, and kind of emotional attached to those things. I'm just thinking when you combine those factors of being the first generation to sort of really be immersed in this environment, also, again, not to be able to connect it to sort of a well-known previous geography, um, to be immersed in that and to see these processes ecologically play out around you, both what we might you know, consider part of the natural ecosystem of the grasslands, but also alongside animals that are part of that settlement period and this being a cohesive region that's built by all of those variable forces um, which is leading to this cultural idea of a place right this is this is the creation of intimacy with a landscape and environment i'm curious then because you also have the chapter of many people going away whether that's you know for school for for travel 
how do they react when they have this package of you know this 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 cultural packaging of place of space particular environments particular processes those meanings what happens when they go somewhere else and how does that both reinforce or challenge home right sure sure yeah you, you let me come back to that i want to say one other thing about their their kind of childhood sense of place because yeah. you brought up some interesting um comments there uh, or factors the not just the domestic animals but they also included the the farmer fields or grazed fields in mm -hmm. their concept of sense of place and one of the things i argue is that you know in the first half of the 20th century this mix of farmland rangeland and grazeland and grassland is is it's a mix that provides their sense of place and that this generation is particularly important because they're the ones that had experience with both native grasslands habitat as they transformed it into this into farmlands and grazelands. So theirs is a very mixed place, and a lot of what we know comes from their writings or or even professional explorations of grasslands when they existed in, in a lot uh, larger proportion than they do today. So that that's sort of fascinating. And it makes this generation in uh, in particular important because of those experiences for settler society. If settler society wants those grasslands experiences today. We almost have to access them through cultural products that were created by this generation. Right. Mm -hmm. I mean, there are parks and preserves and even more today, but not not in the same way that these this generation experienced it. Now, Yes, many went away, and in some ways, I don't know if you've had that experience, but when you go away from a place, you all of a sudden realize what's unique about your own. Of course, as children growing up, they, they weren't thinking they were creating a sense of place. They just knew their little locality. They're attached almost to their their little 160-acre farmstead. You know, They don't even get much beyond that. And then, of course, as they get older, they venture out more, and then some do go off to um, you know, to college or to work or, you know, and, and they get a sense of the broader space and they leave grassland space. They get to the mountains or they get to more thickly settled places like Indiana and Illinois. And they, they you know, this was one of the things that I, in, in uh, reading their memoirs or even some letters, you would look at what they noticed and they would comment about, you know, the wind being different snow being different, you know, that the built environment was different, which is related to how many people you can have, you know, in a space in terms of agriculture, in terms of what the broad eco um, ecology will support. And they would notice those things. Or even there's a case of one uh, young woman who went from Falkton, South Dakota, down here to Vermilion, where I'm at, and to go to USD in 1889, um, the year South Dakota became a state. And she's just, you know, just uh, uh, astounded by all the trees along the Missouri River because where she lives, there, there is a little river there, but settlers cut down most of those trees very early. And she's like, it's almost like a different place, you know, seeing these. And, uh, you know, so bit by bit, they learned what was distinctive about their place and, you know, how it is different from from other places you know that that's when they learned oh there's oh the way trees look on the land are quite different in this you know uh, in eastern areas in this all goes to sort of creating again to your point conscious or, or, or unconscious but you are creating sort of this mental cultural geography that's informed by these normal not normal or, or what i knew what I don't know. And so you're creating sort of these mental boundaries on regionality and place, the place you knew. I, yeah, you, those, the, the, the middle section of your book just does such a wonderful job of that. And I really enjoyed reading that. It made me really think about regionalism and, and place making quite a bit. At the same time that they're traveling and getting new experiences, they're also being educated, whether it's through the, you know, primary and secondary school system, and then off to college where they're learning geographic, classic geography, mm -hmm. geographic concepts. So they're combining some of that intellectual growth with all their experiences, where as a child, they're just sort of, you know, on their own, you know, imagining everything, you know, yeah. so that's also a component of 
a regional identity. It's, it's more of an intellectual exploration, whether either comparative or learning concepts of how other people in the United States and Canada that, oh, there are other regions and other regional labels. And this is how people make sense of a much broader space. This is how people divide up a nation, you know, mm -hmm. into regions, that sort of thing. And even about their nations being in Canada versus the United States, for example. If this is a story then about settler colonialism, uh, then, it, then it has to be also a story of displacement of, of indigenous peoples, which you, you've mentioned before. You, throughout the text, you remind the reader of the larger geopolitical context of displacement in the late 19th century. Um, but also key to your argument about place building is this nuanced discussion regarding uh, the place uh, that indigenous populations play within uh, settler colon colonial myths. Perhaps you could talk a little bit about how indigenous populations, indigenous communities on the North American grasslands fit into the creation of place for second generation settlers. Uh, yeah, of course, one of the interesting things about both Canada and the U.S. on the grasslands is that there are many reserves in Canada and reservations in the U.S. Um, indigenous peoples, um, although their land was severely reduced, they stayed and have been building up their communities the whole time settler colonials have been building you know, their societies. And so that, that means that settlers and these, this generation has an opportunity to encounter them. And what I present in the book is a whole range of experiences. You know, there are settlers who basically ignore indigenous peoples. There are others who recognize, you know, that there are indigenous peoples around. I guess some of the best or most sensitive, the way I, I like to think about them, began to see natives differently, actually, when they began to understand the environment better. They came to see that natives actually understood the environment and had lived there for generations and found success in the environment. And um, I was particularly interested in those um, people. One of the one of the ones I write a lot about is George Will, who took an interest in indigenous village cultures and their agriculture, the Mandan, Hidatsa, and Arikara, and particularly their corn seed. And, and George Will, who was born in the 1880s and grew up there, ended up experimenting and doing a lot of research with indigenous populations and then tried to hybridize their seeds. And he felt like this was going to be the, the great answer to settler society stability in the area. And so, and he, and he also had a hard time convincing the average white settler farmer to adopt these seeds. And so he recognized racism and kind of white supremacy and, you know, the resistance just because they were native seeds. So he would be among the most sensitive and sort of trying to figure out, and he was by no means perfect either, but he, he understood things and began to see the consequences, which I think is also important for this, this generation and what they can maybe provide us. These are people grappling with the consequences of you know, um, westward expansion and, on, you know, as adults coming to understand what happened. Another one that I talk a lot about is Anora Brown, and she was a, a painter who painted wildflowers and indigenous um, settings and scenes and settler scenes. She sort of mixed it all, but she did because she wanted to know about the plants, um, the native grasslands habitat. She did research and including in, into indigenous traditions. So once again, she began to have more understanding for, for what happened. But it's also interesting that even the best of them, when they looked back, they sort of, you, you get the feeling they almost wanted to make their parents more accepting than they were. So they'd sort of create their own myth, you know, like, it's been this gradual progression where we're learning to get along and, you know, they want to believe that their parents were perhaps more enlightened than they were um, once they reach a, a level of greater understanding. So that's sort of problematic too, kind of making it seem like this progressive development. Um, and then there are those who, you know, you, you feel like they lived 
many, many years there and didn't learn very much, like Lillian Miller of Montana, who felt like she was being a, an example for the Métis and the, and, you know, and the, the Blackfeet nations, you know, of what, of white womanhood and, and Effie Laurie Storer up in uh, Saskatchewan was the same way, you know, I'm bringing civilization. And so, so there, you know, it was really interesting because at first I thought, well, maybe it makes a difference if you live next to a reserve or reservation, you know, you would have more opportunity to experience indigenous peoples but in the end, you had people um, who lived near them who do, who became enlightened, and you had other people who lived near them who just didn't seem to change their mind, you know, from age, you know, fourteen to eighty-five, you know. So um, it's it's a complicated thing, and you know, of course, this is one of the things that we have to deal with, you know, generations down the line, is these relationships and indigenous uh, nations continuing as you know sovereign peoples in designated spaces at the same time settler society is claiming space today these claims exist side by side and of course indigenous peoples you know always had a different sen sense of place or always had this cultural claim to a larger grasslands and even though they're you know were uh, forced to accept these small reservations they've always claimed a much larger space and continue to visit sacred sites and, you know, and, and access the land, um, from a, a larger perspective, I think, but it's, that chapter was important to me. I have a whole chapter that discusses this just because you're wanting to look for those people who, who made some effort to understand and come up with some new ideas about acceptance mm -hmm. and relationships. Yeah, it's 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 really it was really interesting to read that to to note the the sort of complexities and the ranges uh, that individuals have to as you say right to understand themselves in in that history that they they can relate to in some sense but are not sort of necessarily immediate to exactly and and I think one of the important points there is that I do think the their sense of place or an environment. Right if they've spent time sort of digging in or in, in contact, that is one avenue toward understanding. It can also be appropriation too, and, and a continuation of settler colonialism, but it also can open up an avenue. And that is not also saying that they, they view natives as a part of nature. In, mm -hmm. in fact, you know, George Will was always talking about the scientific way native women grew their corn right and acknowledge those sorts of things and in in a quite modern way because you are also interested in the cultural aspects of placemaking in regionalism you of course have a significant portion of the book that also is looking at the role of fiction and literature and art and the ways that the second and third generation settlers would continue to find a sense of place on the northern grasslands um, though themes often ranged in literature and poetry from the late 19th century to the early 20th century, you point out that there's, in fact, a great deal of, of um, commonality uh, between authors that we might not always group together, uh, you know, talking about someone like Willa Cather and, and Wilford Eggleston and um, Robert McCallman and Wallace Stegner. Uh, these, they're different in their writing styles, but there, in many ways, you also point out there are some similarities as well. And those you point to as the works produced by these artists, ways that they have created a sense of place, not only for their generation, but as you point out, we still read these people, right? They are still creating a sense of place. Um, I, I'm curious, how do these works um, cr create a sense of place then and now? Yeah, well, as I, as I, they recorded experience you know, with the native grasslands and the agricultural row crop fields and rangelands, you know, grazed by cattle. And what they did is put that experience that I say is key to this generation into literature. So, so generations down the line can also experience that. Um, and at this time, one thing, interesting things is, you know, in the early 20th century, when most of these kind of novels were 
were coming out in poetry and even art like Anor Brown's paintings, you know, when these things were being produced, uh, there was a movement in like modern literature to discover what is modern American literature or, or North American literature. And, you know, uh, this idea that we need to relate to the place and to the landscape in order to, to make it quote our own and modernists claimed this and they would use language like indigenous. We need to be indigenous to the place and we need to be native to the place and our land. And, and some of them even understood a relationship once again to native America, looking at natives saying they have something different than we do. We don't have that. We need to develop that. Right. Which is once again, why it's settler colonialism down the generations, but they were trying to put, you know, new perceptions and what, you know, about space about horizon, about what they experienced into the national literature, once again, helping a region to emerge in a national literature, getting the rest of the nation to acknowledge this space as an art form. If you have art forms that are accepted, then your region is sort of accepted. Then that's a different level of claiming the continent, you might say. They also, in terms of a thematic thing, they're putting this this struggle with environment and farming and struggle among the generations into kind of literary forms, and, or at least that's what they're trying to do. And as you know, that for me, studying literature, they were, you know, it, it, the literature didn't have to be literary for me to include it. They just needed to be expressions of someone trying to write fiction or poetry, even if it was popular or, or today's literary critics wouldn't necessarily recognize it. I liked it because they were early works trying to put the environment into a modern literature and find the language to really communicate those perceptions and, and places. So they created these significant cultural products, I think that's a part of claiming on the regional level. And as you just pointed out, they're there for us to read too. And they are read in Western literature classes and in high schools. And, and this is teaching us a sense of place. Right. And there's still sort of those in many ways, you know, a lot of these authors are still iconic for defining spaces for defining regions. Um, you know, I lived for a short period of time in Utah and you still, I mean, you, you'll be bashed over the head with something Wallace Stegner at some point in time. So it's just interesting how these authors, you're right, like if they get, yeah, because you, you do point out that there are definitely some books, some some works that you're pointing out that aren't maybe not critically acclaimed, but that that's not what you're focused on. You're focusing on sort of the production of regionalism and, and the ways in which people are sort of latching onto that meeting. I, it just is so interesting to think about the ways in which these childhood experiences sort of morph over time into these literary expressions, which then get picked up for future generations to then again, sort of relatch onto these particular historical environmental cultural moments. Uh, well, yeah. And, and yeah. what's key about them is that they're trying to do this. So I was trying to capture those mm -hmm. initial attempts, like with Wallace Stegner, the, the, the earliest book I use is on a darkling plain right, which was one of his first novels that, um, as I say in the book, he refused to get let, uh, re to let it be republished because he viewed it as an apprentice novel. But that really put me onto it because I wanted to see how his language changed. And you could see it changing and him dealing with different themes over the course of On a Darkling Plain, Big Rock Candy Mountain, and Wolf Willow, right? Mm -hmm. You could see certain themes being developed. But I like the struggle. And in fact, his main character in On a Darkling Plain talked about the struggle. Like you can't just get this into poetry. You can't get it on a page, which I read as kind of him expressing his own French frustrations, but also, as I said, you know, taking some joy in the landscape, but wondering what has this done to me, you know, now, you know? <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. So you, so you wrap up this book sort of tracking how this region, this grasslands region begins to, I'm going to say fracture uh, into, into the early decades of the 20th century, uh, a fracture in the sense of more distinctive labels 
between prairies and plains, uh, which speak to larger changes uh, between nations, uh, in particular geographies. Uh, You point out that the old Northwest will give way to the regional title of the Midwest. Uh, And much of these regional changes occur in the early 20th century when commercial agriculture will transform the environments and the economies of the grasslands. How did these larger changes, uh, that is environmental and economic changes, lead to diversification of regional identities? Okay, so I view this as, you know, very much a part of settler colonialism, viewing agriculture as a a base uh, for regionalism. And what happens over time is that settler society sort of divides the region extends the Midwest to, you know, your classic 98th meridian, 100th meridian, somewhere, you know, somewhere in there, when they can expand row row culture, you know, row crop agriculture that far west. For a long time, settlers believed this could be extended much, much further without aid, meaning without um, irrigation or other kinds of equipment and specialized hybridized seeds or um, chemical agriculture. And, you know, while we know people like John Wesley Powell, the explorer, first identified that line in 1877 with his arid, uh, you know, arid report and many other explorers identified these things, the general population, it took them a lot longer. Their hope, their hope that they could spread this much further west lasted a lot longer. So in essence, you know, you start, they go to the Northwest, the new Northwest, the Northern area of the North America's grasslands, and they consider it the Northwest or the West, right? They, they really use West in this period. And the same for, for um, U.S. and Canada, they both use Northwest and West. And then over the 20th century, you know, starting in the early 1900s, picking up after 1920, I'd say to the mid 20th century, Middle West in the United States in particular um, comes into use. Uh, In the 30s, we get prairie provinces and uh, Great Plains coming into their own for perhaps maybe obvious regions, uh, reasons they're being studied and the Dust Bowl and the Depression and the combination of the two really present a different image in the public mind of Canadians and Americans. And so those regional labels, and there are government reports that slap those labels on many things, making it a part of the cultural geography of the area. Um, there's one thing, so so those things are all happening at the same time. And that's that's another point that I want to make clear is there is no one cutoff date for a shift between Northwest and Middle West or Prairie Provinces. Um, this is a flowing, fluid identification, depending a lot on one's experience. And I would say also on generation. It's the younger generations that adopt Middle West first. As they grow up in under new circumstances, those older generations who came to it as a West and the Northwest, it, those labels hang on longer in that generation. So they're kind of overlapping and, and somewhat sort of fuzzy, I guess you could say. And, you know, so in a nutshell, it has to do with, with agriculture, where you might have looked at this whole space as grasslands, there becomes this divide based on agriculture, row crop agriculture. And this is obviously kind of up into the middle of the 20th century. Yeah, you have this, actually, you have a great line in your book, and maybe I'll, I'll read it here for uh, the listeners here that sort of gets at those themes. Uh, this, is, this is from the book. Only after the limits of unaided, unirrigated commercial grain agriculture became more popularly accepted could a line between the Middle West and West be drawn more certainly straight through North American's northern grasslands, and could prairies and plains grasses be tied to strictly defined attributes? whether in relation to precipitation or nation, that reflected new settler colonial regions. The new definitions constituted cultural interpretations of the grasslands influenced, but not determined, by modern science and settler society experiences from the late 19th century through the middle of the 20th century. By then, the lines of aridity, finally apparent to so many of the descendants of settler colonial society, served to consolidate both the United States' and Canada's holds on North America, 
even as the lines repelled individual settler colonial families. Settler society raised precipitation above grass, geology, and topography in the modern regional definitions. And I sort of love that paragraph because you're, you're sort of making a case for like regionalism is, a, is environmental change, economic change, but it's sort of it's, it's born of a process, right? These historical processes are creating regionalisms. Well, and because, you know, even for example, you know, it took a while for, for, you know, corn to be, mm. you know, developed further West and more secure. And of course, George Will would have had it growing everywhere, you know, even much right. further West. Right. So even that took time, you had to drain some of the prairies just as you had to bring irrigation to others. Right. Mm. So it, you know, it, 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 it itself was a process. So, so I'm curious, you know, you know, wrapping up on time here, what, what do you think listeners of Heartland History should take away from Grasslands Grown? The Middle West as a region and a concept has a history that changes over time. What we consider the Middle West today, the states we include today are all there. And, you know, it's, it's a good definition, but what gets included, what states and what, what landscapes get included changes over time. And so I think this book discusses that, or at least opens up the discussion of that. I think people interested in settler colonialism uh, will find the book interesting because it looks at settler colonialism down the generations to the middle of the 20th century. We need to start, start discussing future generations and how this is an ongoing, we know about the settler colonial present, but we need that, the history of how this played out in individual people um, in these regions. Uh, and um, I think it gives a, a, um, a good um, background in how we can study um, the distinctions between sense of place and regional identity involving our physical bodies, our sensuous experiences, our intellectual experiences, and how all of these things come together um, to produce what are cultural geographic regions. I, I would second all of that. Uh, I agree. I, I found this book absolutely fascinating. As an environmental history, as a, a history of the particular places you're talking about, it's sort of, but at, as that sort of more structural level, anyone interested in regionalism as a sort of theoretical concept, uh, a, a childhood a sense of place. I mean, it's all in there. And I think this will be helpful for anyone trying to, to do similar work or grapple with these ideas on their own. So uh, absolutely. I'm really excited. to. I think these are new voices, too. I think while people will know a few voices, particularly somebody like Wallace Stegner, there's a lot of people who um, have not been discussed in the historical literature um, that, uh, so I was excited about that, excited to see more South Dakotans and North Dakotans and, uh, people from Saskatchewan in, in, in the book. And, um, another interesting thing for me was, you know, it's really people's, um, relationship to the land, either in the environment or intellectually that draws these people together, but they're really quite diverse in their occupations. And it's like, for me, history has lived that way. We're always walking next to people who do all sorts of different things, right? And what do they share in common? Well, they share a certain space, right? And so for me, I sort of think that that's an interesting idea to play around with, you know? Yeah, and I think Grasslands Grown certainly gets you thinking about those dynamics. So uh, success on your part. Um, before we wrap things up, I'm curious um, if you might be willing to share with our listeners if you know, what you might be working on next. Do you have any projects currently underway? Well, I do. Several related to regional study. I, I, I'm looking more closely at the 1940s. You know, when we study, you know, kind of regionalism in the U.S., we tend to look at the 20s and 30s. And I think for the Northern Plains and Prairie Provinces, the, the 40s is a key decade for developing regional ideas. And also, I'm still interested in doing some more... Um, uh, research on indigenous voting in South Dakota. Before this, I had done a lot of research on women's suffrage and the different um, uh, times that South Dakota tried to pass women's suffrage. And I'm very interested in the eight, 1890s indigenous voting. And so that's another area I'm 
kind of continuing on. But but still looking at regionalism and cultural geography, I think, and its history. Great. Well, we'll we'll be looking for both projects in the in the coming years. Um, Molly, thank you so much for joining me today. Uh, I loved reading the book. I really enjoyed this conversation. Again, for our listeners, uh, the book is Grasslands Grown, Creating Place on the U.S. Northern Plains and Canadian Prairies, published by the University of Nebraska Press, as well as the University of Manitoba Press. Get your hands on a copy at your local bookstore or on the University of Nebraska Press website. Molly, thank you again. Thank you so much, Camden, and thanks for asking such great questions that allowed me to talk about many themes in the book. I really appreciate it. It's been delightful. Anytime. Thank you so much. Thank you.